High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I, I hesitate, of course, to start talking about Donald Trump, but he's in the papers every day. But it's really interesting what he's doing at the moment. He's pledging a million dollars of his own money uh, to help the people affected by the hurricane in Texas and Louisiana. Now, if Donald Trump thinks that a million dollars, which is bagatelle to him anyway, and number two, uh, he notoriously has been pretty mean in giving monies to charities. If he thinks this is going to help his popularity, then he's wasting his time. I think it demonstrates really that there is a misunderstanding, not just uh, in America, but everywhere of politics. Because today, again, in the news, you heard the criticism of the Taoiseach. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that I don't think Taoiseach wrote that tweet. I think he's got a tweet department. And uh, there are people in the tweet department who probably can't remember John F. Kennedy. Uh, in fact, they might remember George Bush, but they're sending out tweets because they are not politically aware and they are not politically sensitive. And I think this is where this new uh, government uh, by uh, communication is going to face challenges. And that's why he asked me, Hall Martin, to join me later in the programme and talk to me about that. The other thing is, just we have organisations like uh, the Workplace Resolutions Board and uh, or, or Commission, and their job is apparently to look at disputes in business. Now, can you believe this organisation, which probably costs a ton of money, uh, spent time because a Lewis driver refused to work because it was close to the end of the shift? And the end of a shift, when he got to the terminus, wherever he was going, it was going to be one minute to clocking off time. And he said, I'm not going because it's too close to clocking off time. Uh, did the, would you believe it? Train didn't actually go. I mean, that's the point. It's a ton of people you have to presume standing there saying, hey, we want to get on Lewis. Sorry, Lewis won't go. Your man won't drive it. Now, the only good news for your man is that there's going to be driverless Lewises in a few short years. And these drivers uh, who held the company to ransom at one early point and then created an inflation of wages of the entire transportation industry, people have got to wake up. There's a whole new world out there in which they're going to have to do it. And one of the whole new worlds... I have to say, is going to be uh, in relation to Brexit. And uh, I'll be joined by Declan Ganley, and he's going to talk to me about that because I think we're getting very uh, mixed signals. Also, I want to tell you about Electric Picnic. I'm going to be there on Sunday, and we're going to do Where in the World. You might remember it on television with Teresa Lowe. Teresa's coming down. Uh, and uh, we're going to be in Newstalk Lounge in the Minefield area. And if you want to be a contestant, send me an email to george at newstalk.com and you can be a contestant. Now, I'm joined by 
Declan Ganley, Chief Executive of Ravada Networks, formerly, of course, a candidate in the European election. Uh, Declan Ganley, welcome to the programme. Uh, hello, uh, George. Great to speak with you again. Yeah, I, you know, the great old phrase, I often, I've, I've been thinking about you recently, and I, the great phrase sort of came back to me, that a prophet is in his own land. Uh, it must be poor consolation to you that a lot of the things you said in that European campaign are coming home to roost. Well, you can't take it personally, George. Uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the, uh, I suppose the biggest, thing that's come home to roost is is that and, and and it hasn't changed um is that the need for really root and branch reform of the european union to make sure that it's it's set up to succeed and survive uh hasn't taken place and isn't taking place and um, what we did one of the things that we talked about way back then was the fact that if that reform did not take place that that member states would would end up leaving the european union and of course this is what we are seeing happening with the UK and the EU is, you know, understandably, uh, you know, not not eager to see that happen. Um, and uh, it, it and is yeah. distracted. The EU itself is distracted by the mission. Uh, it, it, the structure is not working. Well, one of the reasons I asked you to talk to me was, I mean, we don't know what's going on at these meetings or whatever, but... Reading the tea leaves, I mean, how are you reading it? Because the the press releases after any meeting uh, never tell us anything, so one can only draw the conclusion that nothing is happening. Well, something must be happening. I don't have any particular uh, you know, insight from behind the scenes uh, any more than, than most people uh, do. Um, I mean, the motivation from the perspective of Brussels is obviously, you know, uh, pouring courage a les ultras, uh, not, not to um, create a situation where it's too easy uh, for the UK, because otherwise electorates in other member states of the EU might be inclined to want to bail themselves from the European Union, uh, from the European project. And from the UK perspective, of course, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, what, what they have to do is, is come out of this with an enhanced or at least not not greatly damaged trade position, and I'm not sure that those uh, those two objectives are um, you, can, can be met uh, from, from both sides of the table. But uh, uh, you know, it's it's hard to see a win-win situation here that's politically going to be sellable to both sides. And I think the, the some of the tone that we've seen, the tone shift that we're seeing in the UK, uh, which is becoming more of that sort of Dunkirk spirit type of thing you know we can we can suffer through whatever the consequences are i think there's a little bit of ground being prepared now uh for to, to get the electorate into a position where um there is a sense of um national pride i suppose for want of a better word to say you know to hell with with with, uh, with, with those people on the yeah, continent you know but, we're going to make it make it through but as far as like because eventually it all boils down to our own patch the irish times is suggesting we've now got a major breakthrough in terms of free movement uh, there was an article on thursday in the irish times where right. philip hammond was saying that they're committed to the whole idea of free movement across the northern border Oh, that's good. I mean, you know, no, no doubt about it. And I, 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 I've read those Irish Times pieces, and I, and I, you know, I think that there's something to be pleased uh, about there. 
Um, but but th- these are everybody is focused, understandably, now on Brexit in the EU. What nobody is focused on in the European Union is serious reform of the European Union. And ultimately, the lack of serious reform in the European Union is what caused Brexit, or it catalyzed Brexit. There are many causes, but it certainly catalyzed it. That reform isn't taking place. Everybody now is focused on the mission uh, right now, which is, is, is managing Brexit. And I, my concern, if I come sure of it, that uh, because these reforms are not being pursued in the EU, we're actually making a failure of the European project more likely than less likely, uh, and, and that Brexit will end up being a sideshow in the whole thing. These reforms are still not taking place. Ooh, yeah. The euro, the, the, the economy is not structured in a way that it has got long-term viability. And, and my concern from an Irish perspective, and this is being talked about, is that you know, we're losing an ally in the UK at the table in Brussels. Now, that's their, that's their choice. It's not ours. But you can already see Macron and others you know, mounting the assault again on things like our corporate tax rates, our tax competition status, uh, and, and issues of sovereignty that, that really do matter. But the the situation appears to be that for a long time, and and you were one of the first people to say it in that campaign in the European election about reform, there isn't a semblance of reform. So, like, if you take Brexit as a separate issue and Britain leaves and all the discussions that go on about Britain and us and all the rest of it. Britain then leaves. But what is left, the European Union that is left, is unchanging, unreformed, dominated by uh, what Germany and France want. And we, on the periphery, uh, don't have a, a second person at the table that we used to have who might support our views. We're going to be no different from Latvia, Lithuania or Estonia. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, George. Now, I mean, it, 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 that might even have been okay if what Germany and France want uh, makes sense in the long term for Germany and France. But, but my whole point is it doesn't, and it, nor does it work for the European Union. The German sort of mercantilist uh, uh, economic structure is not working for the rest of the European Union. We have a, a chronic, uh, crony corporatist system in Europe where our whole banking system, our central banking system, interest rates, everything are set to maintain the current current status quo with regard to you know, large, struggling companies that that really do not have um, uh, we we do not have the up and coming uh, new crop of of businesses, the sort of the Googles of the future, if you will, coming from Europe. They're not being fostered in Europe. Our whole tax structure isn't working. Our enterprise structure isn't working. We're way too dependent on a few very large employers in the center of the European economy uh, to generate tax revenue. And our demographics absolutely are terrible. We have terrible demographics. And, of course, we have uh, problems with with managing our our borders, uh, uh, plus 
burgeoning security risks that are coming okay. from unstable parts of the world but, on our borders. But what about you? And it's not, none of it's being dealt with. All right, what about you? I think in your quieter moments, you probably think you went to bed early uh, in that election. Is the, the, the uh, urge, the dynamism, the commitment that was there then, you might get a very different reaction from the electorate now if, if you went. What about that? Yeah, but what would you run for? I mean, I have a business to run uh, right now, and there's nothing to run for. And, and this is one of the problems, right, with, with, with the structure of the EU right now. Um, wh- where are the public offices even that have levers that you can control that actually change anything? Um, it, it, then that's not working either. Um, yeah, that needs to root and branch reform. I talked about things like a, a federal Europe, a, a bicameral legislature uh, at the European level, but pushing much, much more responsibility down to member state levels. The offices that you could that are even available to run for are, are, are very few, if there are any, where you can really affect major change. It's um, it's, a, it's a tough one. I've thought a lot about it, and then of course I have my primary and, and uh, focus and sole uh, focus and responsibility right now, which is, is is running a business and innovating there. And maybe that's the best way. Maybe maybe on the sidelines, you can have at least some uh, uh, small effect on, on, on the thinking uh, and the debates around these issues. Um, yeah, maybe that's one way to do it. All right. But, but the professor, uh, former professor of uh, finance at the UCD Smurfett School, Ray Kinsler, was on the program yesterday. And he thinks there is a, now an increasingly compelling case for Ireland to leave the EU in tandem with Britain. Would you buy that? Look, I have huge respect for Ray Kinsler. I think he's a, one of the smartest academic minds we have in this country, no doubt about that. Uh, um, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't be, we should be thinking about it, and I can say this, at least we should be seen to be thinking about it, <laughs> because there is a Brussels position, there is a British position, and I would argue that there is a uniquely Irish position, which is not the Brussels position, nor is it the British position. And I'm, look, it's easy for me to say, because I am on the sidelines, back to my earlier reference, and, and I'm not one of the guys in the negotiating room uh, right now, but I do worry, and maybe this is an unfair, an unfair comment, but I do worry that we may be playing a little bit too much from the Brussels playbook and not quite enough from a uniquely Irish playbook, because uh, um, I, I, I'm not privy to these discussions. Maybe that's that's, okay, uh, Jerry. But, but Rem- I worry that that might be the case. Yeah, well, that's what a lot of people are actually asking. Um, I think, and Jerry makes the point that Margaret Thatcher once said that the EU would always be about Germany and France. Well, whether Margaret Thatcher actually said it or not is unimportant. We do know that today in 2017, it's all about Germany and France, isn't it? It does, and uh, it is at the moment. And they need to change that. And I think some people in Germany and France realize that. But, but perhaps more than anything, at least from an economic standpoint, and it's, it's really late in the day, we need to purge Europe of this old mercantilist, crony corporatist economic system. And we need to foster an enterprise economy where risk, it's basically the disposition, the attitude to risk, 
is is welcomed again. That that particularly from an investment and economic standpoint, that real risk from that starting from small and medium sized enterprises, that risk takers are welcomed and are given the space to grow, and that the big dinosaurs are not propped up through quantitative easing, artificially low interest rates, and other policies that are actually killing the the engine of growth for Europe's future. Because without that money, Germany, France, you know, Italy, all of these countries, if you take the, the, the revenue, future revenue sources and their demographics, in the long run, they're all insolvent unless this is addressed very, very soon. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. That was Declan Ganley, Chief Executive of Revada Networks. I I uh, was MC at a political debate at that European election that Ganley stood, and we were on the back of a truck uh, in County Mead somewhere, Kells, I think it was. And he was so impressive. I mean, he was incredibly impressive. He's also a very wealthy man with a very successful business. And I remember at the time, all the criticism about him was, funnily enough, not about his policies, but rather that he was wealthy. Like, it was classic Irish. This guy's made a ton of money, therefore he must be a bad guy. Um now, earlier on, I talked about this Lewis driver who refused to drive the Lewis because when he got to the end, he would be one minute, not after, but one minute before his finish time. And he said that was too close to his finish time uh, because he wouldn't be able to get wherever he wanted to go and he didn't drive the train. The train did not go. People did not travel. And then it has to go before the Workplace Relations Commission or something, because naturally, Lewis, they should have sacked him. They didn't sack him. Instead, they gave him a warning, a 12-month warning, and and they could have sacked him, and they decided not to. Uh, and... And your man wasn't happy with the warning, so he went off to the Workplace Relationship Committee, Commission, where they spent a day talking about it, uh, eventually coming down on the side of the Lewis quite correctly. But as Mike says, the Lewis driver is just an example of this country being held to ransom by unions, which are a scourge. Ryanair works and is successful because those types of workers would not be tolerated. Funny enough, I'm a great union man. My old man was um, a trade unionist, a, a clerk in CIE. But when you think about why trade unions were there, they were there because um, people were hard done by. What they now have become is, and that's why they're only essentially in the civil service, is they've now become uh, protectors of uh, people who have jobs that the rest of us don't have. And the point that the very people who are at risk through zero-hour contracts, um, through unfair working practices, who are underpaid, nay, even gender gaps, uh, have no unions representing them. The one place that needs unions is actually the private sector, and the one place that has unions is the public sector. The one place where there are no unions is, of course, our competition, where you don't have to be a union member to enter. All you have to do is want to stay at uh, 
Clayton Hotels. And we've got all sorts of competitions for you today at Clayton, including Clayton Hotel Dublin Airport. So before you go off to your holiday, Clayton, you can stay at the Hotel Dublin Airport the night before. And then when you come back from your holidays, you stay in the Clayton again. What a good idea. And dinner uh, on both evenings with wine, breakfast on both mornings, shuttle bus up and down to the terminal. There'll be champagne when you come back. And they'll t- look after your car, park it and valet it. That's brilliant, isn't it, really? All from Clayton. You know Clayton. Uh, they're uh, got in 17 fantastic locations in Ireland and the UK. By the way, that stay at the Clayton will be for two of you. So you'll have a great time. Anyway, all you have to do is simply tell me in what year did Terminal 2 at Dublin Airport open? Was it 2001 or 2002? 10. Text Clayton at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N together with your name and answer to 53106. I'll have a winner before I uh, dash off at 2 o'clock. ClaytonHotels.com is the website next time you're planning a holiday. Marion Sligo says, Hi, hooky. Leave the Lewis drivers. They work hard unlike you and your big fat backside. Marty, I have to tell you, since I engaged in the Catholic diet and have lost substantial amounts of weight, my backside now from the rear, if you look at it, in my new tight jeans would rival the great Pamela Anderson, if you like that kind of backside, which, of course, isn't everybody's cup of tea, as they say. Coming up next, fantastic fare reductions on Aer Lingus across the Atlantic. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined now by Declan Carney, who is Director of Communications at Aer Lingus. Uh, Declan, first of all, welcome to the programme. One thing I want to ask you about is with the proliferation now of, of flights across the Atlantic, I don't know how many there are a day if you count up all the airlines. Well, Every- we certainly cross the Atlantic over 30 times a day now. So, Well, uh, everybody has to go through immigration. Yes. And I'm I'm now, I readily admit it, I'm so scared. I now go out to emigration and I'm the first guy in the queue at about seven o'clock in the morning, irrespective of what time the plane leaves. But then I'm paranoid. But, I mean, we are putting a hell of a lot of transatlantic flights through Dublin Airport, are we not? Absolutely. Our transatlantic business, for example, has doubled in the past five years. We started in 1958, so we're not a startup operation that's kind of going forward in leaps and bounds because it's new. We've been flying the Atlantic for nearly six 60 years and we've doubled it in the last five but so must be, yeah. there is a boom in transatlantic traffic going through Dublin and Dublin is becoming a major player as a, 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 a European hub for transatlantic Well I was travel. going to say that when Willie Walsh, Laser Bear Lingas now uh, of course at British Airways and still, uh, well not at British Airways he's the CEO of IAG but he's actually the chairman of Aer Lingus right. now, so he's back but the, in Aer Lingus Yeah in but the sense. interesting thing and, and no doubt which prompted by Aer Lingus presumably there's a ton of people now in, in Glasgow, Edinburgh Manchester, Liverpool who are saying I'll go to Dublin get my pre-flight checks done rather than go to Heathrow and face emigration in America. 
No. Yes, well, absolutely. Certainly part of the growth of uh, transatlantic traffic Dublin is based on the fact that the, the, the convenience of pre-clearing customs and immigration at Dublin and not having to do it at the end of a very long journey. Uh, so that is, a, that is a draw for people, not only from northern parts of Great Britain, but also from all across Europe. So uh, on our transatlantic flights now out of Dublin, we would have in some cases over 50% of them have originated from all over Europe in, on our network and they're flying Aer Lingus into Dublin and Aer Lingus on to, to North America. But the the issues that you, you, you discuss in terms of uh, some congestion uh, at these at these points uh, at Dublin are, are real issues. There is an issue of uh, the provision of infrastructure at Dublin to meet the demands of this additional growth. Uh, and that is something we are very concerned about. Our own chairman has talked about it as recently as last July. And uh, we, have, we have some very serious concerns about the uh, next couple of years and our very ambitious growth plan to grow Dublin as a transatlantic hub and the ability of DAA as the managers of the airport to actually put the right infrastructure in place. So the kind of things we're talking about, George, there are things that people may not see, but the widening of taxiways to actually get aircraft to and from the runway quickly and the provision of what we call contact stands. So actual stands at the airport that the aircraft can attach with an air bridge to the airport. But all those years ago, I mean, I know it's a kind of blast from the past, but like when you went out of Dublin Airport, a trip across the Atlantic was a big deal, only experienced by a tiny number of people in the country. There were only maybe two or three flights that were going out. It was kind of Boston or New York and that's it. Mm. Now there's the growth of Aer Lingus. There's the growth of the other competitors for you across sure. the Atlantic. Um, but you still only have the same number of uh, people that they can go through immigration. And that's an issue for the American government, isn't it really? Rather yeah, than, it is. rather than DEA, DEA. Yeah, or I mean, there's an there's a, there's an issue obviously there around the size of that facility and the ability to get people through it. But I think there are other issues that people don't see, yeah. but they experience and they don't realise. So, for example, if your aircraft is pulling up towards the stand, having arrived at Dublin. And the pilot tells you that we're just going to take a couple of minutes here now. Uh, that delay is actually because there's an aircraft parked in a stand. It needs to get out of the way and there isn't enough capacity in terms of stands. And those kind of issues will impact on the ability to build a connecting product. So a lot of the growth at Dublin, a lot of the growth in Aer Lingus is about connecting people at Dublin and building efficient connections. And if people miss their flights because the arriving aircraft couldn't get in, then that's an issue well, you in terms of the, to, yeah. the ability for Dublin to grow. And remember, the growth of Dublin and the growth of Aer Lingus as a transatlantic carrier is bringing jobs, it's driving tourism, it's driving economic growth, and it's driving international trade. But, so these are important issues. For but us. you must be teed off, because it has happened to me, because like when you leave, you leave Boston on time and suddenly arrive in Dublin and you're delighted, it's half four instead of half four, uh, half five, and you're thrilled with yourself. And then the very point you make, the captain says, listen, sorry, I can't get to my stand because it's a plane they're waiting. But the problem for you is they blame Aer Lingus. Isn't that right? Yeah, that, and that's you know, part of the problem. Uh, th those specific instances, I, I can't say exactly what the issue was there, but there is an overall issue that there aren't enough contact stands at Dublin Airport. And there seems to be a focus on the provision of a new runway from 2020 onwards, which we believe is necessary. But that is something that is three, four years down the line. And uh, in the meantime, we have very ambitious growth plans for the next three years. You've got a new fare. Tell me about this. It sounds really interesting. There are lots of new carriers coming into the market and some of them are offering
selling a product that is unfamiliar to, to, to the market to date, which is where effectively you're looking to just sell transport from A to B and add on additional extras uh, if you so wish. So this is something that uh, flyers are quite familiar with over the years for traveling around Europe, but it's, it's, it's quite new on the transatlantic. So what we've done is we've introduced our saver fare, which is in addition to our existing offering where you get bags included, you get seat pre-assignment included. Uh, but th- this, uh, this new fare includes a meal, it includes obviously your transport from A to B, uh, but if you want seat uh, assignment in advance, then you you pay for that as an additional extra. If you don't want it, you don't have to pay for it. Uh, if you want earphones and a blanket, you will pay additional. But again, if you don't want them, uh, you can you can uh, go for a, a, a better value option. So it's not for everyone. It is for people who like to travel light, who don't want to bring a big suitcase with them and are happy just to bring uh, a cabin bag with them up to ten kilos. And it won't be for everyone, but it's part of our principle of offering choice to people. So we will now have this new offering. And uh, in addition to that, we have still what's called the smart fare, which is a, a bundled product where you get all of the product attributes built into the price. You know, if I want the cheapest possible fare across Ireland, now I know you can't give me the cheapest fare because it depends if I'm going to Boston or New York yeah. or Tuesday or Saturday. I don't mean in that way. But what kind of a difference could a stripped down fare mean to me if I said I don't want to listen to music, I don't want a blanket, um, I, I'm not going to take any bags, I, want the, I don't care what seat you put me in yeah. and if the wife is 10 rows away, I don't care about her either. You versus would... the traditional kind of offering. What would the saving be? Well, the saving would be about 80 euros on a round trip. So it's very yeah. significant for people because remember, transatlantic fare has been coming down over the years. Uh, so you can travel across the Atlantic now with the new saver fare for 169 euros each way. If you were to uh, buy the smart fare, which again, a lot of people will want to do because they'll want to take a bag. Uh, they'll want uh, earphones and a blanket and they want to pre-assign their seat. Uh, but it would cost you another 40 euros. So it cost you 209 euros. So that's the kind of difference. And as I say, it's it's not for everyone, but it allows you to, it allows us to offer a fare across the Atlantic for 169 euros, which uh, nobody would have dreamed of years ago. My first flight to London, maybe not in 1960, but certainly during the 60s, it's quite possible that my fare to London return, admittedly, mm. was greater than the current single fare to America. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you look at the pricing back in the late 50s, the early 60s, to cross the Atlantic, the you know, a, a round trip uh, uh, itinerary across the Atlantic would have cost you the equivalent of buying a family saloon car. So if you sort of ramp that up to nowadays, now you can cross the Atlantic with a saver fare for just over 300 euros uh, round trip and you wouldn't get much of a car for that. Sir. I remember also in America they had this thing which they called the peanut airlines because they didn't give you any food. They only give you a packet of peanuts and, and a soft drink, okay? I did notice that you included a meal in this price. This is on the basis that seven or eight hours in the airplane, you can't have people fainting from hunger, presumably. Is that theory? Or what? Yes, I think, uh, you know, the, the our, our research tells us that currently people still want the, the meal included. Yeah. Uh, it, that may change. Again, this is an evolving market, so that may change into the future. But certainly uh, at the moment, what we're, what we're stripping out of the of the bundled offering and offering as a saver fare is the uh, is the pre-assigned seating and the baggage 
and uh, the, 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 the blanket and the headphones for the in-flight entertainment. But the Irish will now also start cribbing as you've separated the wife because your your competitor have found this problem. You've separated the wife or as soon as they get on the plane they'll say, well, I want to listen to Bob Dylan and they'll mm. just make life very difficult for you. We're not the most organised kind of people where travel comes, comes to. Isn't yeah, right? well, I suppose that the, the, thing, the principle for us is all about choice. And so the saver fare won't be for everyone. But if you are travelling alone, for example, and you are travelling light, and therefore you don't you don't really care and where you're, you're sitting, you want the cheapest price. Take. Yeah, and you don't mind where you're sitting in the aircraft because you don't want to sit beside anyone in particular, and you don't want to bring a large bag with you, then this is the offering. Thanks very much for joining me. The Director of Communications at Aer Lingus, Declan Carney. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. It's time for George's favourite movies and I'm joined as always here in the studio by lecturer in film at Trinity College Dublin, Stephen Benedict and of course you'll find him at stephenbenedict.ie Stephen, welcome. Welcome George, thank you very much. Um, there is, there are people actually who listen to the program and watch movies, but think black and white is almost <laughs> like silent movies. Yeah. So if you mention black and white, sometimes it's they just off, say, I wouldn't watch it. Yeah. And there's so much good black and white. And and this is a pretty old film, really. Mm-hmm. And 1950s it's, we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And it's the blue lamp. Yeah. Now, that won't mean a lot to a lot of people, um, but it's the blue lamp of the title. Yes. To this day, I think, uh, British police stations have a blue lamp. That's right, outside, outside. the station. And That's this right. is a story about yeah. metropolitan police. police. in London, yeah. yeah. Now, again, you know, a while ago we were looking at uh, the Glenn Miller story, and the Glenn Miller story is a very, very enjoyable movie. The blue lamp is an important film. I don't want to sound like Eamon Dunphy, but it's not a great movie. (laughs) It's an important film, but I'm intrigued as to why you've chosen this one. Well, there were a number of reasons because I didn't see it on first run, you know, because I was too young. And I saw it then subsequently and there were a couple of things that got me immediately. The the lead actor is a guy called Jack Warner Mm -hmm. who was an absolutely sort of uh, solid member of of British film. Mm. And I had seen him in a film called The Last test which was a cricket movie and I'm a mad keen cricket fan and particularly so as a kid so I kind of suddenly I saw a movie with Jack Warner in it and I said I gotta go and see Jack Warner then my first exposure to somebody who I then had a lifelong affection is probably the wrong word but somebody whose career I followed Mm. hardly missed a movie good bad or indifferent Dirk Bogart. So then I suddenly see him. Mm. And um, the other thing then was my father. I talked to you last week Mm. um, uh, about the Glenn Miller story story, and my father's effect on me. Here, my father's involved again. No. Yeah, because we... We had all, I had all these cousins in England, mm. in, in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because all my mother's family had emigrated except her. Right. So now post-war, there's rationing yes. in Britain. Yeah. And we're going over with suitcases full of bacon and You sausage. were the rich cousins. The rich cousins. <laughs> no, no. The non 
rationed ah, cousins. Right, right, right. So we filled a suitcase with rashers and sausages, yeah. sneaked it through customs for my cousins. So now when we watch the movie with my father, because my father took me to movies, not my mother, my father. Studios of Britain weren't like studios in America where they could build a city. Mm. They actually had to film out That's the, the street. That's the big difference. That's the big difference. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is part of the, the realist tradition that begins yeah. in British cinema. So my father is saying to me, there's the Harrow Road. Do the you real remember streets. the Harrow Road? Yeah. yeah. There's Paddington Police Station. Yeah. And I'm just a god. Besides seeing it. Yes. Just a short few months before. Right. And it's very, very different, I think. I mean, especially... You know, if if we're looking at when I was young, you, you look at New York and you see New York movies. And when you go to New York, it's not the city; it's a movie set. Mm. So I think if you saw the the streets of London before you actually saw the movie, then just look at the movie, you're going, "Wow, this is a very very strange experience." Because it's photographed differently than when you would have remembered it, no matter how you do it. Because you're not you, when you were there and the first time when you went to London, you weren't actually directing a movie yourself. You were there to visit your cousins, and when you come back to Dublin, you're looking at the movie, going. Wow, is that the way the film, is that the way the street looked? <laughs> now, the, the thing also, which they must have done, which I only thought about years later, there's huge bomb damage in reality yeah. in London at this point yeah. when they've made it, mm. which which still hasn't been fixed. So they're filming around like that. Uh, the Met, the Metropolitan Police Force were thrilled to have like a movie about them and they gave them huge support. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a there's a caption at the beginning of the film saying that it's actually dedicated to the Metropolitan yeah. Police. And then we open up with this very interesting voiceover and then introduction to the character of PC George Dixon. So I think we just have the clip lined up. We'll hear the way the film is introduced. OK. To this man, until today, the crime wave was nothing but a newspaper headline. What stands between the ordinary public and this outbreak of crime? What protection has the man in the street against this armed threat to his life and property? At the Old Bailey, Mr. Justice Finnemore, in passing sentence for a crime of robbery with violence, gave this plain answer. This is perhaps another illustration of the disaster caused by insufficient numbers of police. I have no doubt that one of the best preventives of crime is the regular uniform police officer on the beat. Veterans like George Dixon, with 25 years service, now Police Constable 693 attached to Paddington Green. Excuse me, officer, can you direct me to Paddington Station? Yes, sir. Straight across the green, turn left over the iron bridge and you're there. Thank you very much. Now, that uh, to me is quite interesting because you heard the judge saying that the, you know, the way to deal with crime is to simply have more police on the streets. And I think that is putting the cart before the horse because that's like telling, you know, it's like saying the only cure for cancer is actually more surgeons. The way to deal with crime is not to put necessarily put more police in the streets, is to address the causes of it. All right, but this is where my advanced age <laughs> trumps your cinema knowledge, right? The movie's made in 1950. Mm. Um, war is only over five, five years. years. Yeah. There are a huge number of children who've grown up during the blitz. On the bomb sites. On the bomb sites. Mm. Lack of discipline is a real possibility. Mm -hmm. And there's a great word at this time which terrifies middle-class Britain. Juvenile delinquency. (laughs) So therefore, um, this idea of how we're going to cope with this, because now we get, we better get to the movie, Mm. 
Jack Warner then had this incredible, this led into a television series. That's right. I think it's one of the longest running TV dramas in the, in the history of British television. It ran for 21 years, Dixon of Doc Green. Now, not giving anything away to the audience, I mean, there's a, there's a traumatic moment in the film when Dirk Bogart's character guns down PC Dixon. Who doesn't last very long in the film at all. No, and this is the interesting thing. that The movie actually, George, marks a shift. It's what we call the Americanization of British cinema because the movie begins as this semi-documentary feel at the beginning of the story. And then you're introduced to this, this senior uh, police officer and he's approaching retirement and then he's training in this young rookie. Okay, yeah. now that is the staple diet now of American cinema. We see that in many, many movies. For example, the Morgan Freeman picture directed by David Fincher called Seven with the young Brad Pitt. He's being trained and he's only got a week left. Now, what happens then is with Dixon being shot down, then it becomes a personal vendetta. PC Andy Mitchell, who's played by... Jimmy Hanlon. Thank you. And what he does is he apprehends um, Dirk Bogart's character at the end himself. So it becomes a personal thing. But what's really, really interesting in the film is that the, British, the London criminal underworld team up in a quasi sort of in, in a sort of a semi-informal way with the police to apprehend uh, Dirk Bogart's criminal and the reason why they do it is because he's an upstart he's a new form of criminal who doesn't respect the code and the very very important moment in the film where an older gangster says stick to the stick to your gas meters Sonny saying that you're only small time petty criminal but even the older criminals realise that there's one line that you do not cross. You don't p- shoot a police officer. One of the things about movies is how they mirror reality, yeah, yeah. right? A short few years later, a guy shoots a police officer, called, and the guy's called Ian Craig, but he's under 21, ah. so he can't be hanged. Mm. Or maybe, yeah, under 21. But his accomplice... Is hanged. Let him Who have it. didn't shoot anybody. Let him have it. That's he right. He famously used the phrase "let him have it," meaning it was ambiguous. Ambiguous. Yeah. But the point is, shooting a policeman in Britain, they had to cabin. hang somebody. Right. I remember distinctly Ludovic Kennedy um, mounting a very, a very big campaign yeah. to 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 exonerate or pardon the the young man. Who's so, in the so Dixon. Now, Jimmy Hanley fell. A ton of people are saying, "Who the hell is Jimmy Hanley?" But for this short period of about less than ten years, he was in sort of major British movies, mm. which in fact were quite small movies. That's but, right. Yeah, but you know, major small ones. Yeah, but actually, you were saying about Dirk Bogart. This is the movie that really launched him because yeah. you know he'd been. The Doctor in the House. That's the series. And he was confined to this, to those sort of those sort of roles, the Matt and the Idol. And all of a sudden people realized through the direction of um, um Basil Dearden that he actually could act. And then he breaks into a completely different vein of films. He makes really, really interesting films like Accident and and Victim. And The Servant. Do you remember The Servant? Servant um, is the most frightening film I think I've ever watched. Why? Is it because it, it, an upstart from the working class becomes <laughs> becomes, this, becomes the master of the house? <laughs> well, the way The Servant becomes yeah, really good. the master. Yeah. I just thought it was incredible. Yeah. But there is one about Dirk Bogard. Uh, the only Dirk Bogard film I didn't like. And it, there were all sorts of undertones which I didn't get mm. because I was young. He was a cowboy dressed in a kind of a black clingy lycra outfit. Do you remember that? No idea what you're talking about, George. <laughs> oh, God, no. yeah. No. Oh, the but strangest here, movie. Just another thing. The movie was directed by Basil Dearden. The, the movie was produced by um, Michael Balkan and was 
done at Ealing Studios. Now, Ealing Studios is most famous for the Lavender Hill mob and Comedy. the Lady Killers. Yeah. And in actual fact, The Blue Lamp was written by T.E.C. Clark, who's a former policeman, and he went on then to write The Lady Killers. But uh, Michael Balkan was the head of Ealing Studios. Now, he had a daughter called Jill Balkan, who was an actress, and she married Cecil Day-Lewis, grandson Daniel Day-Lewis. Wow. All right, listen, where else would you get it? Except from my guest, Stephen Bendick, lecturer of film at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, StephenBendick.ie is where you'll find him. But of course, he is famous throughout the broadcasting industry as my sidekick on George's favourite films every Friday. We'll have another favourite for you next week. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined now by the leader of the opposition, Micheál Martin, of course, who is leader of Fianna Fáil and is in an agreement to keep the current government in office. Uh, he's been critical this week of uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's approach to the information service of government, so I thought I'd ask him. Uh, Deputy Martin, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Uh, what's your view? You, you were fairly trenchant. Well, I think my basic point is that we have some very substantial issues at the moment in, in terms of the country, uh, the most critical one being uh, housing and homelessness. Uh, it's a real crisis, and the government has failed to get to grips with it over the last number of years. People are talking about it all over the place, the lack of action, the lack of definitive progress. We just had uh, two homeless people die this week, tragically, and our condolences go, go to their families. And so it, it concerns me that the Taoiseach seems to think that communications is number one. It's not. It's homelessness and housing is number one. Uh, health issues are number one uh, and access to the health services. And I, I, I believe that the new strategic communications unit, um, I, I've flagged my concerns that it, it represents the utilization of taxpayers' money um, to essentially give a political message. We already have an extensive uh, government uh, information service. Uh, we have uh, press officers in all departments. Um, I don't believe they need the strategic communications unit, but it's a more fundamental point, the utilization of taxpayers' money uh, to, to forward a party political message, in essence, because that's what AIDS to the Taoiseach volunteered um, some time ago in relation to it. Um, and also the fact that it, it, it puts forward the idea that really... Our issue is communications, not actually uh, the, the, the pitiful lack of house construction, right. access to, to, to um, health services, and the very poor broadband in rural Ireland, which, yeah. is, which is really uh, preventing rural Ireland from developing okay. economically. Now, uh, what you're essentially saying is the Strategic Communications Division, or whatever it's called, is in fact a PR machine. Now, interesting what they've done since Taoiseach um, was, became leader of Fine Gael and Taoiseach. There's his famous socks with the Canadian Prime Minister. He then referred to the movie Notting Hill at a British press conference. He tweeted uh, this radio presenter. Uh, and there are pictures of him, you know, doing triathlons, getting up early in the morning and all that sort of stuff. And then just... Yesterday, he tweeted about remembering where he was when Princess Diana died on the same day that we had a tragedy of two homeless people losing their lives uh, in Ireland. So 
are you saying that this is a government of PR rather than a government of action, to put it in a, a simple sentence? To put it in a nutshell, yes. Uh, absolutely. And um, I think that, the, you know, in terms of that detachment from the reality of the crisis on our streets in terms of housing, there is a terrible detachment uh, and a sense that communications can cover over or hide the reality. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, George, at the bank holiday weekend in August, when the figures came out in relation to housing, <clears throat> the lack of house bills and, and, and the growing problems in terms of the cost of rent, for example. I mean, the young generation today have huge challenges. And if you're a young person who gets a job in a city or get a job in Dublin, nearly 50% of your income now uh, is going straight away to rental. Um, and it's just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary crisis that's hitting people All right. at social housing level, at young couples trying to buy a house, at pe- young workers trying to rent houses. Uh, and there is no sense yet um, okay. that the government is, has a capacity right. to get to grips with it. And PR isn't going to deal with it. All right. Well, I don't want to stop you in your party political broadcast, but I am really interested in your concerns about whether communications can cover up a multitude of deficiencies for a government. Now, it, 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 like you're an experienced politician. Let's look at America. Whatever we think about Trump, Trump has harnessed social media. Trudeau, uh, the teacher's best pal, Trudeau has done this thing as well of running around the place and wearing fancy socks. Macron is spending tens of thousands of, of uh, euro on makeup artists to make sure he looks the part as he wanders around. Meanwhile, the head of Inafall is in the is in the DNA of Sean Lamas and Jack Lynch. So what about that you should reinvent yourself and become like all these modern-day leaders because it would appear that that's what the voting public wants. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> no, but maybe. Come no, on now. No, no May, I'm not going to reinvent myself. I'm going to be who I am. Uh, and the Michal Martin you see in, in, in ordinary real life is Michal Martin you're going to get. Um, you know, the... And by the way, Macron is nose diving at the moment, so be very careful who you want to be aligning yourself to or, or, or sort of mo- uh, modeling yourself on. Um, but uh, no, I think it's substance in the end, George. Uh, and I think we had this before the last election as well. Uh, image will only take you so far. Um, but the, there has to simply be delivery on the ground. Um, and there has to be delivery. No, I get that. People actually get that, you know. I mean, well, uh, sorry, yeah. Deputy Martin. I like we can have another conversation next week about what is the which I believe and this program believes is a monumental crisis: the issue of housing and yeah. homelessness. Right. So we take that as red. The real question is: Fine Gael have shifted under this leader to a dramatic. PR exercise. I mean, this isn't Liam Cosgrave or, or John A. Costello we're talking about. This is a completely different Fine Gael. This is a man who won the election because he gave cream cakes to the journalists and so on. So from his very earliest effort to get elected as leader of Fine Gael, there has been a PR landslide. Now, meanwhile, back at Fianna Fáil, we have Mihal Martin, you know, saying... This is what we get. I mean, you may well be right because an election's going to prove it. But I have to ask you the question. There's a lot of guys out there around the world who are who are changing the methodology of, of politics. Corbyn, who you and I would abhor 
got within a heartbeat of being Prime Minister of Britain because young people voted for a very different kind of politics presentation. Look, without, without question in terms of, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm not overly concerned about that hype. I'm not overly concerned about the presentation as you've described it. Uh, and I'm very confident in my own approach uh, to the issues uh, and to politics and political presentation. Uh, my approach is very much one that's on the ground, as you know, uh, and has been for the last number of years. And I'm into, par- into the parishes of this country. I'm on the streets. I'm knocking on doors. It's a different kind of approach. Uh, but I get into the kitchens. I get into the rooms of, 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 of modern Ireland, and I hear firsthand how people are feeling, what their challenges are, what their objectives are in life for their children and their families. And I think that gives me a far more solid and better okay. grounding in terms of preparing the pathway right. to go back into government and start dealing in a concrete way with the daily harsh realities of many okay. people's lives but in this country. So I'm quite self-confident okay. in what I'm doing at the moment, and I'm certainly not going to do a sort of a PR makeover to try and sort of suggest to people I'm some, something other than Okay, no, but my point being is you raised a hair like I didn't. You raised it. That just said this government communications unit is little more than, not your words, I'm oh, yeah, paraphrasing. Yeah. So therefore, you're <clears throat> critical, and you've said it to me now a number of times, that communications is not a substitute for action. And I happen to agree. But there seemed to be, not just in Ireland, and this is my point here, there seemed to be other guys around the world who are suggesting that, look, if if I sharpen up communications here and don't don't do anything, I'll still get elected. I I take your point, but I think that's a very initial thing. You take even George, you take Trump, for example, Donald Trump. I mean, he's, you know... The situation has not gone that well for him, and in many respects, uh, you know, there has been a reaction um, against uh, his rather bombastic approach. Uh, to no, but sorry, so Deputy like Martin. I mean, he did. Yeah. He did I, I take your point. His uh, approach did have a significant impact in the election itself. But by the way, I'm reading a very good uh, account of Hillary Clinton's campaign called Shattered. Um, and you get the sense of huge deficiencies in her campaign, Correct. which I think contributed to Trump's Correct. election. So Correct. there's always a multi-faceted right. approach to, to elections. Well, in that regard, we have an extraordinarily old-fashioned president, and I use the word old-fashioned in a, in a not in a complimentary way, but in a reasonable way to describe him. He is he is the classic kind of male president that we've had all the way back to your hero, Eamon de Valera. Um, but therefore, our Fianna Fáil now to show us this new Fianna Fáil, this new uh, driving Fianna Fáil that's in the kitchens of the nation. Are you going to put up a hot shot uh, at the next presidential election? Well, I think, first of all, you, you, you summed up, you, you, you described the, the, the president as, uh, I think, classic, uh, what's the phrase you used, um, old-style politics. I, yeah. I would disagree. I think in, uh, he has... Uh, as he's evolved in politics and aged, I think he's been very innovative as a president, and I think he's captured the imagination of people generally across the country. So uh, I rarely discuss uh, a successor to any incumbent president on the grounds that I think the dignity of the office deserves to be respected. Uh, and so we haven't made any decision in relation to uh, the, the presidential election. Uh, and I think we, we're going to give that more time, and we'll give the president himself more space to continue to conduct uh, his office with the energy and indeed the dignity that he's brought to it. But uh, I know you 
can't do that. But but the, the, the presidential is still, it's an election and it is at the presidential uh, office is held by a member yep. of the Labour Party and for long, for a long time Fianna Fáil had a lockstep on it through De Valera, Childers, uh, Sean T. O'Kelly and so on. Like, I mean, it's still a political office that Fianna Fáil would like to have in their CV, surely. Yeah, but to be fair, it's a political office that has evolved over time as well, and it's far less partisan now. I, I, I don't actually believe people vote for their president on the basis that they're a Labour Party member, a Fianna Fáil Party member, or, or a Fianna Gael or Independent member. I think that has changed. I think the public look to a prospective presidential candidate in terms of their suitability for office. Uh, will they represent okay. the country? Will, will they carry it um, well? And I think that's why Michael D. Higgins ultimately, you know, shaded. There was, there was also okay. a very controversial election at the time. Oh, sure. But I think his performance to became president has right. been, has been um, in my view, uh, outstanding. Can we inform the nation that, um, I know you're in West Cork on a well-deserved holiday, can we inform the nation that you're currently pounding the roads in preparation for your next triathlon? <laughs> Well, I actually walked a marathon, John, about two ago. <laughs> the Wild uh, Atlantic Marathon organised by the Court Marathon Lifeboat and the uh, Barry Road GA Club uh, okay. highlight why the Seven Heads Peninsula uh, should be within the Wild Atlantic Way was inexplicably excluded. So I walked 26 miles uh, leisurely with um, 350 people from the community. We had an outstanding day. Uh, okay. But I won't be doing any triathlons anytime soon. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that. I have another question, because this is of great importance to the nation. And you know here on High Noon, Deputy Martin, we ask critical questions for the nation. Uh, the nation wants to know what time you get up in the morning, because apparently it's critical now to political success that you get up early. <laughs> About seven <laughs> uh, he's got a day's work done, uh, Deputy up, Martin, but, but before I, I you're up. Be more, I tend to be more of a night owl, um, <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, I'm more productive late at night, George. <laughs> uh, all right. But, but uh, can we close? Because it's where we opened. <clears throat> you do not believe that the government's new communications unit is needed and that it is attempting to be a panacea to cover up the real problems of the nation. Is that your position? That's it, in essence. That's it, in essence. Deputy Micheál Martin, leader of the Fianna Fáil Party, leader of the opposition, and a proud Cork man, and he's not going to change those of you who want to make over any time soon. Deputy Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very me. much, George. Thank you. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. A substantial reaction, I must say, to that interview with Hall Martin. Des says it's only with the support of Hall Martin and his party that the government survives. If Hall is so concerned with this government's performance, it's within his power to sort it. Dolan says your contempt for Lever Edgar is palpable. Is it because he is a modern, progressive young man and not an old dinosaur codger like you? 
Uh, people need to realise, Jerry says, that it's good that Meal Martin has brought Fianna Fáil back or else we'd be left with Paul Murphy or worse still, Jerry Adams. Uh, and then does Meal Martin not realise that Fianna Fáil caused all the problems he's talking about? Are you trying to say, George, that Meal Martin as Taoiseach would be less of a PR monster than Leo if he was given the chance? Johnny Elkin Kenny... Joan Wexford, I'm not a Fine Gael voter, but I like how Leo is using Twitter to communicate directly with the voter. But I prefer to talk about policy, not Diana, says Joan Wexford. That is the issue, Joe. And uh, and Mike says, if there was a hint that Fianna Fáil would go into power in vain, I would actively oppose it. And we had a Clayton Hotels competition. Don't forget, it's before you and after you go on holiday. Uh, stay in Clayton at the airport before you go and then stay at Clayton when you come back from the holiday. Really brilliant, particularly if you came home early in the morning or were leaving late at night. Anyway, the winner is... Uh, Aileen Castles in Mullingar, who correctly answered, Terminal 2 at Dublin Airport was opened in uh, 2010. I have an email on the movies. Uh, the Blue Lamp, George, what you were talking about in your movie slot. I'm one of those who loves black and white movies. Unfortunately, I was unable to hear all of your piece, but I presume you know that the blue lamp was more or less the pilot prediction of Duck Green. Yes, we did say that, I think. Another one was The Long Arm of the Law with Jack Hawkins. Yes, we did that too. Uh, great stuff, says Tony. It gives us an insight into uh, how the British police went about their business. Well, I'm joined now because I'm going to Lisbon, Portugal, to talk to Bruno Gomes. Uh, Bruno, welcome to the programme. Hello, hello, George. Thank uh, you so much. Yeah, no, it's good to have you. Listen, this is amazing. You've started something called We Hate Tourism Tours. Please explain. <laughs> well, yes, yes. You know, it, it all started in a very, uh, how can I say, in, in a very uh, almost uh, intuitive way. You know, I was just, I had some free time, you know. that, that That's one of the benefits of being unemployed. And uh, I was, you know, friends were coming to visit. I was sharing my city and some of the knowledge and my experience uh, about Lisbon with them. And, uh, you know, I had a friend that told me, Bruno, you should start a tourism company. And, you know, I just answered to him saying, ah, I hate tourism tours. I'm not a guide. I don't want to be one. You know, I just love people and to share the things I love with them. So basically, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was just like this. Okay, so uh, I come over from Dublin and I come to Lisbon. What is uh, Bruno Gomes uh, going to show me? Uh, you know, uh, maybe nothing. You know, uh, <laughs> you know. No, <laughs> uh, normally, I like to joke and I like to say that uh, in we hate tourism tours, we are not really interested in showing you things. Uh, we are really interesting of, of uh, sharing with you. Uh, our perspective and and obviously our experience and and about the city of Lisbon. So uh, in the end, I, I will be a lot more happier that you will understand a little bit more the city, that you will understand the culture, that you know a little bit more about ourselves and the city than actually just to see it. 
Now, that's really interesting, Bruno, because, of course, as I leave the studio today, around about 2 o'clock, um, there are going to be lines of tour buses of, of tourists coming and looking around Dublin. Now, if I come to Lisbon um, to meet you, and, and the name of your tour company again is We Hate Tourism Tours, <laughs> and my guest is Bruno Gomes. Uh, now, Bruno, what I would like to know about, for instance, is Portuguese food. I mean, I know fish because you're you're there on the Atlantic is very important. Exactly. I know I know the Algarve very well rather than Lisbon. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, I'd like somebody to explain to me. Look, here's a restaurant, and this is the kind of things you should order. Another thing is. I haven't seen it now for a long time, but there must be a lot of people who don't understand fado, for instance. You might talk to me about fado, for instance, just for a moment. Yeah, you know, and uh, again, you know, fado, like the Portuguese food, is actually quite simple. Uh, You know, like uh, Portuguese food, I would say that it's, uh, I think, one of his best things is the simplicity and and the honesty, how he's made. Uh, Obviously, we were never... Uh, really, uh, you know, like a, a rich country. Well, maybe 500 years ago, but not now. So most of our cuisine is actually very humble and simple and very honest. And, and I think that's what really uh, uh, grabs the, the the taste of people. Uh, with the follow music, I would say that it's the same feelings put it in music. You know, it's the, uh, it has a lot to do with the longing uh, with 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 really you expressing yourself in a very open way, and uh, obviously you have some sadness in Fado, but you also have uh, uh, how can I say you also have uh, uh, some some fun in Fado. You know when you understand it, you see that uh, uh, we sing to release our our bad thoughts. So yeah. in a way, we are just getting rid of all our sad emotions by singing. Now, of course, uh, perhaps now, because so many people travel, and particularly travel to Portugal, but uh, when I was a young man, uh, I sort of thought Portugal and Spain were the same, because, of course, they're on the the same peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula. And then, of course, when I went to Portugal, and the first time I went to Portugal, I have to tell you, Bruno, uh, was in 1969. So it's almost 50 years uh, since I went to... Such interesting period. Yeah, because that was just <laughs> before the revolution. So exactly, yeah. Exactly. So it, the thing is, um, there was the revolution then, and the Algarve was really the center of the revolution a couple of years later, right? and and so on. <laughs> so I would think there would be a wonderful opportunity here for Irish people to get to know about. Portugal, the country and the people, rather than just going to see things. Now, I have a listener here who said, we did a hate tourism tour with Bruno about three years ago. He had a great (laughs) meal in a local restaurant, Fada Music, and he stayed out with us partying for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they shouldn't say that, huh? They shouldn't say that. (laughs) Then I'm in trouble. Then I have to be always partying. <laughs> so, how would Irish people link up with Bruno and We Hate Tourism Tours? Well, you know, uh, basically, I'm—I uh, have to be honest with you, George, and, and I always say that we are very lucky in We Hate Tourism Tours because uh, uh, we have the luck to to work with interesting people. So, I would say that uh, you know, interesting people—they always—they always end up finding us. 
and about you know and found about ourselves and and that's very very interesting for us and i guess also for the people that find us and come with us uh, because i'm talking about like uh, traveling in a in a in a really conscious way in a responsible way you know so it's actually very easy nowadays with the internet you know if you make a search on you know on google or you know you can find us quite easy okay quite easy, so we 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 google we hate tourism tours in portugal yes. or bruno exactly. gomes uh, and we're going to find you there um now uh, the, the thing about Portuguese, when I listen to Portuguese people speak, I very often think I'm listening to Russians uh, because, of course, <laughs> of the way you, that the sort of sibilance of the S's. I mean, exactly. If, the you, if, you, if you were Spanish, I suppose you'd be gro- uh, Gomez, but because you're Portuguese, exactly. you're Gomez. Um, exactly. Talk to me about the language for a moment. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, Portuguese is very interesting because it's a Latin, uh, so the structure and the base is obviously Latin. Uh, but we can't forget all the influences that that Portugal had in here, and and uh, specifically like the Moorish and the Arabic. Uh, you know, we we can't forget that in the Iberic Peninsula, either in Portugal and in Spain, until almost nine hundred years, uh, the Arabs were here. And uh, and it's very interesting because basically the the when Portugal was really conquering the lands to the Arabs, instead of kicking them out, uh, our king was actually assimilating them. Uh, so it's interesting that in our culture we have a lot of uh, a lot of um, influences, characteristics that remain from the from the Arabic. And for example, the words, some of the accents, uh, I would say that they came since then. Since then, and and I would say that this is one of the uh, that makes one of the biggest uh, differences between of all the Latin languages that makes us closer almost to the Eastern Europe countries because of the sounds, you know, the she she she. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to head off, uh, Bruno, for a lovely <laughs> weekend. You might wish me a lovely weekend in Portuguese, please. Yes, yes, you know, bon fin de semana. <laughs> I won't even try. <laughs> but look. And obrigado, George. Obrigado, exactly. I'm going to be in Portugal in October, so I'll have to okay. look you up and you can take Please. me out. Part We leave a lovely Ingrid at home in the hotel and you and I will go out and party, okay? Well, it will be a pleasure to share a, a glass of wine with you. Yeah. Huh? You know that the Portuguese, we love our wine. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> <coughs> Bruno Gomes there. We hate tourism tours in Lisbon. He sounds great, I must say. Uh, it, it, it's just, a, and also I thought it was interesting. You know, he was unemployed and he set up a business. Anyway, here come the girls. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, welcome to Here Come the Girls in the company of Maggie Doyle, broadcaster and journalist, uh, and of course Dr. Sabina Brennan from Trinity College Dublin, who invariably uses the next 20 minutes or so to psychoanalyse me 
And then one of my favourite restaurateurs, the proprietress of uh, La Cravan in Dublin and, importantly, chairperson of Ireland's Blue Book. In that book, of course, you have some of the great hotels and restaurants in Ireland. It's Sally Ann Clark. Sally Ann, welcome to the programme. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So I can I kick off where I want to kick off? Of course, George. Yes. You usually do. Who wants to talk about engagement rings for men? Uh, well, uh, well, I think Maggie it's a good thought. idea. Uh, Sally Ann, right, you go, Sally Ann. I think you... that if women are going to be, you know, marked like pigeons, men should be too. I've always felt that <laughs> way. Marked like pigeons. Yeah. My, my, my problem with Sally Ann is who's buying? The, now, as somebody who's not yet engaged or married... I say not yet, right? <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, she who's buying a... who's buying the man engagement ring, as it's being called? They're not oh. as expensive as the, you know, oh. the ladies' version. I mean, the men's rings, um, you can buy them plain rings, you can buy them a signet ring, or apparently the latest one, if you're same-sex marriage, uh, the, the the husband will have the the one with the tiny little diamonds in it and the um, other partner will have the one with the bigger diamond just to or sometimes they have ones exactly the same depending whether it's uh, female or male and I think it's a wonderful idea Where did you get all this information from Sally? I am a restaurateur I see people every day of the week I see rings I see different things I admire um, I observe and I ask questions because I'm a nosy parker. All right, okay, but Serena Brown, you've got some thought about the brain processes. Sorry, I only I, I only just met Sally Ann, but I just want to say, in a same-sex marriage, given that I'm a mother of of of, of a son who recently got married um, to his husband, they're both husbands. <laughs> but Are one they? wears yes. one. Sometimes they wear similar rings, and sometimes they have like a um, one will have a slightly bigger diamond. But if than one's the other. not a husband, what's the other one? What what could they possibly well, be other than husbands to each other? Well, they're both husbands, but they both have their own roles in the relationship, just like um, any other marriage does. I'm sure, it's the same on sex, same sex marriages that somebody is chained to the kitchen sink, and the <laughs> other one, the other one, the other one goes out for pints you on see, Friday night. You see, maybe that's why I don't see it this way because in our house the heterosexual parents don't have those kind of uh, relationships and my kids cook my husband does the ironing um, and goes out to work I go out to work I do the guarding I like like you right. George Are you in favour of getting an engagement ring or Sally Ann clearly is she's, she's nailed her colours to mast Are you in favour of getting an engagement ring? I'm in favour of people For doing whatever the hell they All want right. because it's just tradition but can I just say something about it what It's I, never stopped you before you've no, talked your way through this every week No the thing that I think is funny is that there's a Ferrari about it that people are saying oh my god men want to, to have engagement rings now you know we've had tradition forever it's only a tradition in a small part of the world in Argentina men and women wear engagement rings in Brazil they do the same in the Nordic countries they wear them as engagement rings first on their right hand and then when they get married they switch it over to their left hand so it's only a tradition in you know a small Sabina part of Brennan, the world Sabina um, yes, Brennan given George that Hope. this is Sabina Brennan uh, the Sabina Brennan programme <laughs> Um, can I say something? You can. Well, when I got married, I had to have a ring, you see. For yeah. Proper for order. For in- yes. absolutely. Proper yeah, order. Like, so she told me to buy a ring. Right? Oh, oh, for yourself? Yeah. Oh, George, yeah. that was quite unusual. Not an engagement ring, a wedding ring. Well, then when I came back from honeymoon, I went to wash my hands in the nearest toilet and I left it there. Oh, no. Nobody knows whether that is by design or by accident, and I refuse to confirm or deny 48 years later. And have you, did you replace it? 
No. No, let's have a look. You're not wearing one now. No. no. And you've never worn one since you lost it. I never wore a ring since, no. Oh. George, I've lost not only one, but two, and then a third <gasps> no, one. But so I I'm not allowed to have any more. Yeah, well, anyway, the idea of, I, I mean... I, I am at a loss to understand modern men anyway. Like, they don't go out for pints on Friday nights or they don't go off on a Saturday and never return and all that stuff. And they, they push prams and they change yeah, nappies and I, they yeah, wash I and mean, they clean yeah. and they iron. Oh, absolutely. I, I just don't get it. They have different mothers, George. Your mother clearly destroyed George, you. <laughs> you know what? Spoiled you can try you. and pull the wool over our eyes, but you're a modern man. You are. You are a modern man. No. Ah, uh, you are. No. I bet you iron your own shirts. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's taken it one step too far, no, George. I, I tell you what I did, because when my marriage was failing, and it's a well-known fact, my marriage was failing and she was going to throw me out of the house on Monday. She said, if he does one thing, which he has never done in a marriage, if he does anything and keeps doing it, I let him stay. And I said, anything, of course, naturally. What did she ask for? She asked me to fill and refill the dishwasher to show my commitment to the marriage. So I fill and refill the dishwasher, not with quite the alacrity I did before, but I do it on a fairly that's, regular that's basis. That's your job. That's well, my job. you got away easy, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I was thinking about this story, and um, my husband doesn't wear a wedding ring um, either, but we did both have wedding rings. And I remember back, actually, when we were both not married not very long, and we were in, anyone remember the pink elephant of your oh, listeners? Absolutely. That, that was our haunt. And actually, he found that when he was out with pals, the fact that he had a wedding ring on made him fair game for the girls. He felt it it actually made it more likely that some girls were going to chat him up because it was like he was Well, Derry has the same. He always says that they're a babe magnet. Yes. Yeah. Really? Always. He stopped wearing it. Always. I can't understand yeah. that at all. You've got to be kidding me. Surely you'd look at a married man and go, well, he's off limits. No, no. Not, a, not, not the girls. Hold on a while. I went away and paid 75000 for a two-seater silver Mercedes in the hope that in my declining years I'd meet some babe thumbing it on the N11 on the way down to Electric Picnic and you mean tell me all I had to do was get an old banger and a wedding ring and a wedding ring yeah. yep. now I just don't believe the story that a store has been asked for school trousers with a 54 inch waist Why you know, you I don't believe, believe it? it I do believe it because my mum used to do school uniforms and you're talking about a long long time ago and those were in the days where you would have kids going into secondary school at 12 and some kids would be tiny and some kids would be like me Five, I was probably five, six, five, seven when I was 12. So there was a great uh, discrepancy between the kids of that particular age. And obviously the same would be of the waists. And About I know 54. No, but when when I when I was leaving, when my mum was still doing school uniforms, they gradually got larger and larger and longer and longer because the kids got taller and the kids got wider. So, I mean, it's been happening gradually. And I think over the last maybe 10 years, it's exploded a little bit more. I mean, you see um, most of the stores used to do up to XL. Now you have a look in, in all the, the shops for the kids. They do double XL and triple well, XL. There's a fella called O'Shea who's a doctor out in Lachlanstown. He's the whiz kid on obesity and all this sort of stuff. But he talks about this obesity epidemic and all this sort of stuff. Now, I have grandchildren and I'm, I'm doing stuff with them in school and all this sort of stuff. And so I've never seen... Any fat kids. So where are really? all the fat kids? You've I... never seen any fat kids. 
I think I, I, have. I have. I've, only, I've, only, look, I I've only been back in Dublin a couple of months. I'm and I have about seen fat kids. Yes, yes, I have seen yeah. fat kids. And it saddens me greatly because I look at a fat child and I just think it's going to be really hard for you as you enter adolescence, as you enter puberty, to lose that weight. And it's just going to probably continue into adulthood. And these are the facts and figures that we're getting, that we are becoming an obese nation, if not already an obese nation. And it's incredibly sad. It really is. Ireland is on track to be the most obese nation. Uh, but you, you academics come up with these kind of figures in order to justify your salary. So, like, I'm sure Trinity said to you, Sabina, listen, get us a figure next month and then you come in and you come in with some figure and they say, okay, there's your salary now. You've got another survey. Like, if I, I have a pain in the butt from surveys... You don't have to survey. You just have to drive home in the afternoon and see kids coming out of school. But talk, talking about figures, George... I don't I, see them. You don't George, see them because you're not looking. We're sitting in traffic lights because we're mothers and we see these kids there's a, there's, coming out and you're I wondering. I have an answer, of course. The I, answer I have simple. an answer why you mightn't see them and well. see whether we have the same answer, George. Yeah. Two smart people, different genders, but smart. <laughs> One. Um, where you are living um, middle class, middle class. This there's is, no fat children there, in the middle class no it's not that there's no fat children but there is a higher proportion of obese children in desh schools for example so that means there's a higher proportion of, of uh, obese children and it's related to you know socioeconomic status Jim. now there's a big issue around that um, as well because um, you kind of go oh my god they're doubly disadvantaged but they're related quite probably All for right. a reason okay can I give you my answer yes if you're going to say if you're going to say the Catholic diet, George, I don't think the kids are going to go for that one. No, no. Although I do believe if you put a piece of Mary Magdalene's hem inside your child's school bag, it will prevent them becoming obese. But anyway, that apart. Mary Magdalene's hem. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what that is. Well, you know Mary that Magdalene. I you know, know. Yeah. She was a woman of ill repute. No, that was that was a bad rumor that was put around <laughs> and was repealed was by Pope news. Gregory. I'm sorry. It was fake news. That one. It was fake news, and it was all wrong. <laughs> anyway. She bankrolled JC, just remember that. <laughs> she earned more money than he did and she bankrolled him to do what he could do. So, uh, Mary Magdalene's hem, you cut a piece off Mary Magdalene's hem or the hem of her dress. And and it's amazing that for two, it must have been a big hem before, because for 2,000 two years, years, it's been the, going. The priests have been giving it to everybody. Oh. But the real reason why I don't see children fat is because all my grandchildren of both genders play sport. They're yeah. out and yeah. about. Now, yeah. I'm glad you That's brought that secret. up. So sport is an issue and there's a um, a, a weight-to-go clinic in Temple Street where they're actually working with obese children and they're seeing 400% increase in the number of kids under the age of five who are obese. So they're working out with them, right? But here's the thing, and we know you need more exercise, it's not just diet. But the interesting thing about sport that I want to bring up is one of the big issues that's causing weight gain in children is in these clinics, they are seeing people pushing babies in in Buggies, drinking sports drinks that are so calorific, the high protein drinks. And why are they drinking them? They're looking at their heroes. Ah, no, no, they no, are looking no, at their heroes who are advertising them on television and they want to be like them. Answer that to me, George. Do you I'll think it's appropriate? Do you think I'll it's answer. appropriate for Do rugby you want stars, an answer, for example? Or do you just want to give me a okay. rollicking. I was astonished. I love taking my grandchildren to breakfast, right? And uh, we have great conversations, like the, the latest one being about drugs, right? It's great mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, I'm assuming they're going to ask for three Cokes. I mean, I'm just assuming, you know. And they say, I'll have water. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mm. I'm a, and part of the reason is that the, I hear you with the calorific drinks thing and sports drinks, but increasingly kids are becoming aware and they're becoming aware these sports drinks aren't all they're cracked up to be mm. and that they're better off drinking water. There's the education, but I want to get on to something else, which is much, much more important. I had an early meeting this morning for breakfast about the great about the gateway going to America to bring business over to Ireland. But that's another story. And I met a fella, and he told me that the new chief executive Sally Ann Clark of La Cravan, Sally Ann, and the Blue Book, Sally Ann, the new chief executive for the Bank of Ireland, is a woman. Wonderful. She's coming over here from HBSBC and she's mad keen on gender equality. Good. I'm taking a move on my account to AIB. (laughs) Wonderful news. Fantastic. About time. Why, Sally-Ann? Why why isn't she big on uh, uh, getting the best person? What do you mean? Get it? She is the best person for the no, job. She, no, but she wants gender equality. She wants tons of women patrolling the corridors. No, she's she going to look, she she looks, to look for what? the best person for the job. And as Sally said, Mary Magdalene, you know, she bankrolled JC. Who's been looking after the purse strings and the household budget for decades, for, for centuries? Who's been doing that? Hmm. Women. Yeah. Women. Yeah. So why wouldn't women be best running banks then? Just, do you think that we would have had what happened in the last 10, 15 years globally? Do you think there would have been a recession if women had been in charge, Absolutely George? not. I think, George, what you're asking is why should she be going for gender equality in her workforce and, and gender, I presume, parity on, on pay scales She as just well. goes in and says, who's the best person to do this job? And she doesn't see a man or she doesn't see a woman. Absolutely. She sees a person. That's the ideal and we need to get to that That's place. why Sally Ann Clark is the chairperson of the Bl- Ireland's Blue Book because we don't look at her and say... There's a woman. We look at her and we say, there is the chairperson. Chair, uh, well, we haven't enough women on boards in Ireland. That's, oh, a, that's a clear issue. God but also, me, George, in, in, in the actual workplace, for example, you bring up universities. We have, you know, greater numbers of postgraduate students are females, you know, but you get to a certain point and that glass ceiling is still there because in the higher echelons of academic institutions, you just have the glass the ceiling of is men. an invention of feminists. No, it's, it's not. No, George. it's not. It's and not. may I just say there are equal uh, male and female on the board in the Blue Book. And That's always good to know. Been. But also, Sally, I'd been. like to ask you because, you, you know, what's interesting is that there's this idea like that, you know, girls love to cook, you know, and women like to cook and the kitchen and all the rest of it and home economics and baking and, you know, cakes and all that. But why not is this it? this girl. But why, no, not nor me. Well, I do like cooking, to be well. honest. But anyway, the point is, why is it then that all the big celebrity chefs, most of them, all the big executive chefs, all the celebrity chefs are men. Are men. Oh, why are they all men? Because they're very focused and they're very single-minded. Why are all the best hairdressers men? Yeah. I mean, think about it because they can focus in. We're multitaskers. That's the way we've been brought up. We never just put on a wash. We have had a shower, stuck in our curlers, put in the washing, empty the dishwasher, put on the kettle. We do all of this while a gentleman is getting out of bed and getting himself washed. It's 21st century women and 21st century men. Sally Ann, the very beginning of this conversation said all these modern men are great now. They change nappies, push buggies, do all this sort of stuff, right? 70 years ago, my father would have been paid in cash, like most men mm. were paid in cash. And he would come home Thank with you. a pay packet and he would hand it over to my mother unopened. My she dad was would the then, same. She would then open it, and, and he was George as well, and she'd say, George, there's money for your fags. 
there's money for your beers. And then she would run everything because she had to get me to a fee-paying school, which was unbelievable for a working-class wow. family. She had to, somehow she got a, rented a house by the sea in the summer. I, I mean, it was miraculous stuff, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. 70 years ago, men recognised that women were superior. Mm-hmm. And so, so why do you lot get on a bit? No, they haven't. But why is there? If <laughs> I they, think if you're turning if this around so a little bit. If we are so superior, George, answer me this question then. Why is there a gender pay gap? Why aren't we paid the same for the same job that we do? Because you are. But it suits you no, feminists to create the <laughs> no, fiction. No, no, no. Can I, it's can not I, can fiction. I, this is not fiction and it's it not fake news. Fiction. And you know it. George. Look what happened when the salaries were released from RTE just a few weeks ago, George. I can answer the RTE question. Absolutely. George, can I give you... you... No, you don't want it, see. That's the song with you, lot. No, no. You don't want the answer. Okay, we'll hear, but it mightn't be the right answer, George. Dobson's better than Oviolon or whatever her name is. (laughs) What, what, what? Dobson is better than the oh, other one. Look, I'm not going to get into individuals, but here's the thing. Here's something no, that does happen. To. Maggie Doyle is making a big point about RTE. The reason that Desi or or, or Joe... No, I'm not making a big point about it. I'm making a point that you're saying that the gender pay gap is fake news. It's not fake news. It is not made up by feminists. All I'm saying is that they release their salaries. We could all see it there in black and white. The women were paid less than men. I'm not talking about the, the, the actual people and I'm not talking about the quality of the people or anything like that. I'm just saying that black and white, we could all see, the whole country saw that there is a difference in the pay for men and for women that work for the state broadcast. But George, it's about opportunity, right? To get to that point. The three are in here getting a free ride on a Friday <laughs> afternoon, <laughs> giving me a bollocking, and you're talking about opportunity. Oh, what a lovely you know way to George? spend a Friday. And you know what, George? I really applaud you for that, and I do thank you for that, and I disagree I with you on some things. No, it is an opportunity to have to have a voice to speak and to talk about these things in a light-hearted way. But the fact of the matter is, women do not get the opportunity. There's there's these little bottlenecks along the way okay. where women. Don't don't get All the right. step. Hold a while. We well, may I just say, in yeah, our business, women get the same opportunity yeah. as men. And we've always made a point of it. The hotel and the restaurant business, yeah. whether you're in the kitchen or whether you're in the front of house, if you do the job, you get paid but the same. But if you look at Holloway, look at La Cravanna, because Sally Ann's too modest to say it, right? Your man, Derry, the husband, right? Really, all he can do is rustle up a few potatoes <laughs> and <laughs> grill a few steaks, right? <laughs> But if I went in there and he met me and he met me at the top of the stairs in his greasy uh, white coat. Excuse right? me. Excuse, I do wash those, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't go there. But instead, I'm created by Sally Ann. Yes. Sally Ann is the saleswoman for the organisation. Yes. Derry is the production manager. Yeah. So they have, no, any man other than an abuser, and I accept they're abusive men, Men know that women are superior. Women have been superior since Mary Magdalene first took off her hem. (laughs) (laughs) My dad used to say, my dad used to say, I'm the boss of this house and I know because my wife said so. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Listen, I think I'd like to thank you all, uh, Maggie Doyle, uh, Sabina Brennan, and of course for making her debut on the show, uh, Sally Ann Clark of Black Ravan, chairperson of Ireland's Blue Book, Sally Ann is definitely going to be back. Can't say the same about Sabina, <laughs> who never lets me get a word in address. And Maggie Doyle. Thank you all. Thank you very much. And thanks, the Sally. show is over. Uh, thanks to Alex Russo and Kira Courtney. 
and uh, Maggie Doyle, who actually produced the show, believe it or not, and uh, Michael Quilligan on the sound desk made it all work.